0: Together here for our first public gathering as a church for 2018. It was Sunday morning, Uh, it was the first Sunday of the year, and we gathered together. And if you don't remember that morning, what we were doing was completing our study in the book of ephesians and so we had verse 10 all the way through the end of the chapter uh, to go and so our first verse that we looked at as a church in 2018 was ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 which says finally be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might in other words jesus has come Jesus has come to defeat wickedness and sin and death and brokenness and unrighteousness. Christ has come, and He has strength. He defeated all of these things for you and for me. And so now, as believers, our ambition and our desire is to be strong in the strength of Jesus. uh, That we've been forgiven and cleansed and made righteous in the sight of God, number one. But now we want to live in the strength, live in the power that Christ still has available to us as believers. And so we want to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of of His might. And the reason I'm sharing that this morning is because to me, that's what the story of David defeating Goliath, is all about all of the bible points to jesus all of the bible reminds us of the glory of christ and if there was ever an episode in the life of david that served as a perfect metaphor picture or type of jesus it is this because we, like the armies of Israel, could not defeat our Goliath, sin, and death, and rebellion, and brokenness, and shame, and corruption, and there's only one in all of humanity who could do that work for us. Jesus stepped up like David stepped up and went into battle, defeated all of that brokenness, rose from the grave, and now we, from this day forward as believers, are to run into in the great victory of Jesus. Amen? Alright, so that's what the Bible is about. That's what the story of Christ is about. And that's really what the story of David defeating Goliath is all about. And what I hope to show you this morning are ways in which David, like Jesus, overcame Goliath. And in looking at those elements, my hope and prayer is that you and I would be able to think about borrowing the victory of David and borrowing the victory of Jesus for our own lives today and what the Lord has put, what the Lord has allowed in front of us. So maybe in your own life right now, you could pause for a second before we even read about Goliath. Maybe you could pause for a moment and you could ask the Lord, Lord, what are some Goliaths in my life? It might be that a Goliath in your life is some kind of besetting sin that has gotten a stranglehold upon your heart. Some kind of thing that's too hard for you, too difficult for you to get out of or to let go of. It could be that the Goliath in your life is some kind of role or responsibility that the Lord has let into your life. Maybe your career, your profession, your job, the thing that you do Monday through Friday. Maybe it's a responsibility for a person that the Lord has placed in your life. Or maybe it's a burden that has come from the Spirit of God into your heart. There's some kind of pocket of pain that the Lord has laid upon your heart in a unique kind of way. And as God's expression of the body of Christ in this community, He wants to use you to help heal that area or that pocket of pain, but it feels impossible without the help of the Lord. What we all need is the power of Jesus in order to overcome and be victorious and successful in all of these areas of life. And so today I want to talk to you about running in the borrowed victory of Jesus. So maybe just stop for a second and ask yourself or ask the Lord, better yet, say, Lord, what are some of those obstacles? What are some of those hurdles? What are some of those giants that are in my heart and in my life? And I'm praying for you today that as you interact with this, that the Lord would make it very clear to you that he longs to bring you into a better, more victorious day. All right, now before we see David, we have to take a look at Goliath. So let's start reading in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 17. Like I said, we have a lot of verses to cover today. So I'm going to read some big chunks of the story this morning, starting out with verse 1 all the way through verse 11. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now right off the bat, what we're seeing is a conflict between the people of God, Israel, and another people group, the Philistine people. And for some of us, this throws us for a loop right off the bat, because you know we might be used to the New Testament era, the church age. And when you read the New Testament and you're living out the church age, it really isn't a conflict between nations here on earth. Uh, we recognize there's a battle against the spiritual dimension and realm. Uh, but in ancient times, what God had promised is that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would be the Savior of the whole world, He had promised that that Messiah would come through the nation of Israel. So the other nations, under the leadership of the principalities and powers that be, would often try to attack Israel to thwart God's messianic plan of bringing that great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Now in the beginning of 1 Samuel, the Philistines were rising up, But as Samuel rose up in power, the Philistines settled down. In other words, as the people of God grew in their love and devotion to the Lord, uh, the nations around them decreased in strength. But we're at a time right now in the book of 1 Samuel where the spiritual leadership of the nation, Saul as king, he's morally corrupt. His heart is not loyal to God. And part of the results of his disobedience are that the Philistines are beginning to come out of the woodwork and gain traction once again. So they came out daily to be in battle against the Israelite army. And verse 4, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion "'named Goliath of Gath, "'whose height was six cubits and a span. "'He had a helmet, verse 5, of bronze on his head, "'and he was armed with a coat of mail, "'and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze.' And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood, verse 8, and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together." When Saul, verse 11, and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. I think Israel was afraid because Goliath was huge. I think Saul was afraid because the Bible says that he was head and shoulders taller than all the other men of Israel. So I'm sure they were looking at him like, hey, you're the big guy, go fight him. And Saul did not want to do uh, that work. Now, in the process of describing this foe, there are some weights and measurements that we don't use in our modern terminology. First of all, Goliath's height is given. He's spoken of there in verse 4 as being six cubits and a span. Now, depending on the... Old Testament, original language version that you use, and the way that you use that measurement, this means that Goliath was somewhere between seven feet and 11 feet Uh, in height. Uh, Probably the best and and most reasonable guess is that he was about nine feet tall. So he was huge. But have you ever seen the NBA and you've maybe every once in a while, you know, you've seen a guy who's like seven and a half feet tall, but he also weighs like 115 pounds. Goliath was not one of those guys. Goliath had armor, it says, that weighed 150 pounds. Or, excuse me, verse 5 the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That converts to 150 pounds. So that means that he could go out into battle with 150 pounds of armor, and he could run, and he could pull out his sword, and he could do hand-to-hand combat, even with that kind of weight hanging uh, onto his body. His spear's head, it says in verse 7, weighed 600 shekels of iron. That means that the, the head of his spear weighed 19 pounds. Now, every once in a while on vacation or something like that, our family would, some friends, we'll go bowling, and you have a decision to make at the beginning of bowling uh, to go and choose the bowling ball that you're going to use, unless you're one of those people that brings your own bowling ball. But if you are, don't tell anybody. Uh, But... You have a choice, you know. Like, wh- what weight am I going to use, you know? And if, and for for a guy, there's a lot of times this internal like conflict that goes on. Like, I can't go and pick pick like the nine pound ball, and then I get back there, and my buddy is like, I pick the fourteen pounder, you know. So, so you know, uh, you imagine a sixteen pound bowling ball at the end of a spear. Goliath was strong enough to be able to throw that spear with even that kind of weight on the end of it, 19 pounds. So this man is a huge man. He gives a proposal to the people of Israel. It's very simple. Hey, rather than go out into battle, why don't we Just have a one-man competition. This was sometimes done in ancient times or are actually other forms of ancient literature that record this same kind of thing taking place where one warrior from each clan or one warrior from each army would come out and be the representative. And the idea was, hey, if your warrior wins, then we will surrender to you. And if our warrior wins, then you will surrender to us. And it was kind of the idea was that we're going to avoid a lot of bloodshed, a lot of you know carnage through hand-to-hand combat. Let's just have a one-on-one kind of thing and maybe there'll be less loss of life. But whenever this happened in the Bible and whenever it happened in other literature as well, usually the winner... Group or the the winning army, they they would actually just run after the people they lost, and they would fight them anyways. And the losers would run for their lives. So what's going to come after this is a great battle, and it won't actually be settled in this one on one thing. But that's the thing that Goliath proposes to the armies of Israel. Hey, send me a man. It's very clear that Goliath's heart was very proud of his strength. his power. He saw himself as undefeatable. Now in verse 12, it says, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. So now we're getting a reintroduction of David, Jesse's son, the eighth of his sons. The three oldest sons, verse 13 of Jesse, had followed Saul to the battle and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. You remember last week we saw that David had been brought into Saul's Uh, household to play music for him from his harp whenever a distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. That was last week's uh, text and study. And so David, from this point, uh, had been with his father. For 40 days, verse 16, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Now in the Bible, the number 40 is a number that speaks of the complete judgment and testing of God. In other words, at this point, the people of Israel, the men of Israel had been completely tested. There was nobody for 40 days who stepped forward to battle this giant. There was no one that could defeat this figure. Like I said, all throughout the Bible, the number 40 is used in that way. The rain came upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights when Noah was in the ark. Moses lived for 40 years in the wilderness after he fled from Egypt before God brought him back to Egypt to lead the people of Israel out of it the israelite generation that rebelled against god and did not believe that he could bring them into the promised land also wandered in the wilderness for 40 years they were completely tested and jesus when he went into the wilderness for a period of tempting or testing he was proved uh, righteous for 40 days of tempting or testing there in the wilderness And so Israel now has been completely tested for 40 days. And Jesse, verse 17, said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. You have to remember the times that they were living in. Uh, Jesse had no real way of finding out if his three oldest sons were safe in battle, what was happening out on the battlefield. And so he loads David up with some cheese and a donkey and he sends David uh, to go basically bring some news. He's kind of operating like like his... uh, David is operating like Jesse's version of FaceTime or Skype or something like that. Like, tell me what's happening with your brothers out there on the battlefront. Now Saul, verse 19, "...and they and all the men of Israel we were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse, who we already saw was his father, had commanded him. This is the first element of what David does and what Christ has done that we also must do if we are going to borrow the victory of Jesus. It's an element that is often, I think, overlooked within the life of David. It's very simple. Here it is His dad asked him to go. And in obedience to his father, he did what his father wished, what his father willed, and he went to the battlefield. This going unlocked everything for David. Had he resisted his father's will, his father's desire, he would never have met Goliath. Remember, at this time in the story, it's like God has a huge problem. He has anointed a teenager to be the next king in Israel. That's one thing for God to want a teenager to be the next king in Israel, but how do you get a nation of people to want that guy to be their king? Goliath was God's answer to that problem. But if David had not been willing to be obedient to his father, he never would have found himself hearing the words of Goliath. This reminds us, of course, of Jesus. Jesus always, he said in his earthly ministry, did those things, does those things that please the father. Did you know that the plan of redemption For Jesus to become flesh and to dwell among us and to die on the cross, did you know that this was the plan of God from the foundation of the earth? And did you know that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is co-equal with the Father? In other words, they are on the same level. But Jesus made a determination as the second person of the triunity of God to come under His Father's will. He said yes to the Father's plan. He submitted Himself to the Father's desire. You might even remember there on the night before Jesus went to the cross, He was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying about the whole thing. And in His humanity, He cried out to the Father and said, Father, if it is possible, you know, if there is any other way for humanity to be redeemed. If there's any other way for forgiveness to be found, for shame to be deleted, if there's any other way for you to take human beings and bring them into right relationship with you, if there is any other way, if it is possible, then let this cup, Jesus prayed, this cup of wrath and judgment and pain upon that cross, let this cup pass from me. But then he prayed, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, we are drinking in this morning. When we lift our hands to Jesus and we praise His name and we celebrate Him and we thank Him for for the forgiveness that is offered by His blood, you know what we're drinking in? We are drinking in the obedience of the Son of God to the Father. That's what we are drinking in. That's what we are enjoying because He obeyed. We are blessed. And man, if you want to run in the borrowed victory of Jesus... There come moments in life where the Father, by His Spirit, is going to speak to your heart. There will come moments where you will come across something in your Word that goes up against what you're doing, the way you're living, what you're thinking. And you have got to say to yourself, Man, I want to experience the power of God unleashed upon my life. Therefore, I want to, I will obey my Father in heaven you've got to step out of your comfort zone and begin to obey him to follow hard after him some of you here this morning you know the reality is you may have come in here today and i'm so glad that god has brought you to this spot and to this place but you may have come here today and there is you know you you know I am struggling with some kind of addiction, some kind of substance that I just keep giving myself to over and over and over again. And the Lord is looking at you. And and He's saying to you, you know this church, you know that there's this group on Monday nights, Regeneration, they they are a loving community of believers who have struggled, so many of them, just like you are struggling right now. And they want to help you receive the forgiveness and cleansing of God. But to come out of that thing that you are stuck in. And the Father would be speaking to you like Jesse spoke to David and like the Father spoke to Christ and He's saying to you, go. You've got to go. But by refusing to go, by refusing to take that step of obedience, the power of God is held at bay from your life and from your heart. It might be a sin, or it might just be the commitment to other groups of believers. Some of you are going to go out into the patio today, and you're going to look at the list of different life group uh, leaders and, and life groups that are meeting. Or some of you are going to go, and in the privacy on your own phone or on your own device, you're going to be looking at those. You're going to see their smiling faces, and you're going to hear the enemy say, they're really not that nice. And in your heart, you're going to feel like, man, I know that I need that community. I know I need to be accountable to other believers. I know I need to open my life up to other human beings. But there's going to be this thing in you that says, no, I don't want to do it. But the Father, He is speaking to your heart, and He is saying to you, you must step out. You must go. And so there are so many times in life where we've just got to say yes to the Father asking us to step out, to get out of our comfort zone, to obey Him. I remember a few years ago, I was down uh, teaching a class at Calvary Chapel Bible College. Every couple of years, I get a chance to teach a block class there. And what the block classes are, is they basically smush a whole semester of classes into two weeks. So every afternoon for two straight weeks from one to five o'clock, you are studying some passage of scripture. So it's eight days in total, Monday through Thursday for two weeks. So it's 32 hours that you're crammed together in this little room. And by the end, you know, you feel really tight together because if you've ever done anything with anybody for 32 hours in two weeks time, I mean, that's a real close knit, you know, kind of time. And we'd go out to eat together and all that. And I remember this one class, the first one I ever taught there It was a small little group, maybe a dozen students or so. And we were getting to know each other, you know, as the class wore on. And I just made a comment during one of the teachings, kind of an offhanded comment near the end. I said, hey, you know, I know some of you, you're at different seasons of your life with the Lord. Some of you feel called to ministry. Many of you don't. You're going to move on and go to university after this. And God's got a career planned out for you. But some of you feel called to some kind of church work or ministry. And if that's you and you could use my help in that process in your life, I'd love to talk with you about it. But you need to initiate. You need to come to me. And so this one girl in the class, she came to me. Her name is Tate. And she came to me. She said, Pastor Nate, can I make an appointment with you? And I said, sure. You know, I I actually brought a travel buddy because I'm not trying to be down here at the Bible College having one-on-one meetings with college students and uh, with who are girls. And so, yeah, we'll meet together with you. And so the next morning we got together, the three of us, and we sat down, and she just shared her heart with me. I could tell it was a fearful thing for her. It It was kind of this thing of like, I've been listening to your teaching. I feel drawn to Monterey. Is there any kind of thing that you have for me? Could I be an intern? Is there something that I could do for and in that body of believers? It was a step. It was, it was a way to say, I want to go. I want to do what the Lord has for me. And so step number one here, we've got David and Jesus went in obedience to the, to the Father, so we must also go in obedience to the Father. Now in verse 20, let's read on. In the middle of it, it says, And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry and that's really all that they were doing every day you have to imagine this for 40 days they put on their armor they'd get ready for war they'd get all pumped up and they'd go out and all they would do all day long is that the israelites on one side the the philistines on the other side and they would just shout at each other for 40 days in a row they would just shout at each other and then at the end of the day they'd like go back into their tents and i don't know what they did like they high-fived each other and they're like hey man great shouting today that was You had that one like really primal scream, and I'm sure it really just freaked those Philistines out. Great job, you know, kind of thing. But every day, for 40 days, they went out and they shouted the war cry. And Israel, verse 21, and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Everything else is the same as every other day except now a new man with new ears hears Goliath. All the men of Israel, verse 24, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And, and here we have now David's first words, David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. All right, so David goes up to the battle line. And he sees Goliath. He hears Goliath. He hears this guy taunting Israel Goliath remember one of his disses one of his lines was you are the servants of Saul not the servants of God but the servants of Saul and David hears him and then he hears the men in Israel talking about Goliath and in talking about Goliath what he hears the men of Israel say is Saul King Saul has determined that the man that goes out and fights this man and defeats him gets three things he gets riches He gets to marry the king's daughter, which as we'll read forward in the first Samuel wasn't always a good thing, but that was number two. And number three, his father's house would be exempt from taxes forever. And so David asks, he's like, what shall be done for the man who goes out and kills this Philistine? And they repeat for him what Saul had said. What we should notice here is, in this passage is that there is a huge contrast between the men of israel and david when the men speak notice that they call goliath this man when david speaks he calls goliath this uncircumcised philistine now i realize that that's a little bit of a creepy way to address somebody In our modern terminology, you know, it's kind of like, whoa, that's weird. I don't relate to that. I'm not ever going to call anybody that, you know, kind of thing. But let me frame it in its context. You see, God had given to the people of Israel a covenant, a promise that he was going to work in them and bring forth from them the Messiah, that from Abraham, from his descendants would come one who would bless all the nations of the earth. And after Abraham believed God for that huge promise and that he would work amongst his family, amongst his people group to bring forth the Messiah, God wanted to make an outward sign for Israel that they were in that covenant with God. And so he gave to the ancient people of Israel that covenant of circumcision. It was a way for uh, them to understand God has made us in a unique kind of way. He has made a promise to us. So when David is saying this, what he's announcing about Goliath is that Goliath is outside of God's promises. Goliath is outside of God's plan. Goliath is outside of God's covenant. In other words, he's trying to ruin God's plan by destroying Israel, but he's outside of God's plan. Notice also that the men, when they speak, they talk about the person who goes out into battle against Goliath as the man who kills Goliath. But David, when he talks about the man that would go out, says, the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. In other words, what David saw happening was embarrassing, not just for Israel, but for God. He was looking at the people of Israel cowering in fear of of a nation around them. And he said to himself, this is reproach upon Israel. This is an embarrassment to God's people. And he couldn't wait to eliminate that embarrassment. And notice also that the men said that this man was defying Israel, but David said, no, this man defies the armies of the living God. And when David said that, he was the first person in the whole passage to reference God. Everyone else is thinking about Goliath. Everyone else is thinking about Saul. But David, in that moment, he is thinking about God. And if you want to run in the borrowed victory of Jesus... If you want to run in the victory that David experienced, you must come to a place in your life where like David and like Jesus who walked with a consciousness of his Father in heaven, you have to come to a place in your life where when you see the stuff of life and the obstacles of life and the trials of life and the sins of life, that you are able to see above that and you are able to see the living God. You have to know that God is alive. You see, the people of Israel, the men of Israel, they saw Goliath as alive, but for all intents and purposes, they thought of God as dead. But for David, God was alive, and Goliath was as good as dead. You see, the Bible teaches that we are to be a people who walk by faith and not by sight. We have to understand that there is a God who lives and moves and breathes and exists He is more real than what we are living in and experiencing right now. Just because He is invisible and and we cannot touch Him does not mean that He is more true and more real than what we can see and what we can touch. But you see, because we can see those things, so often our hearts become consumed with them. When there is a God who is above all of that. We must, Colossians 3, verse 2, set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. You see, our response to much in life is going to come down to our perspective. If God is not alive to us, then when things like this unfold in our lives, we will panic and we will fear. And we will run and we will be paralyzed and we won't be able to move forward. But if we believe that God is for us, not against us, if we believe that he is there to help us, if we believe that he's even there to take the trials and the pains and the difficulties of life and that he's going to use them for good within our lives, if we can believe that, then it enables us to move forward, which will propel us into deeper victory in Christ. But as long as we're paralyzed in fear, as long as we see the obstacle rather than seeing God, we will not be able to make progress in this Christian life of ours. I remember years ago we, when we had a, just an every week kind of standalone regular midweek Bible study. It was kind of a small little group. We'd get together, we'd study the Bible. And I remember this one night, a man came into our church uh, on a Wednesday night And I'm pretty sure he was uh, still feeling the effects of intoxication from alcohol. And he just sat there. And during the teaching, he began to sober up. And during the teaching, he began to weep. And as the Bible was interacting with his heart, he became broken before God. And he gave his life to the Lord, and still today, he's walking with God, and he's making disciples. He's making a huge difference in the kingdom of God. But what had to happen there was a shift in perspective. He had to have a revelation from God. He had to begin to see that there is a God who exists, who loves me, and is working on my behalf. But until that was settled within his heart, there was no moving forward. All right, now in verse 28. It says, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, Verse 29, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. There's a proverb, Proverbs 27, verse 4, which says, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? This is what was happening. Eliab, you remember him. He's the guy in chapter 16 who when Samuel saw him, he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And God said, I have not chosen him, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And Eliab had felt the sting of that rejection, and he had watched his youngest brother, David, become anointed as the next king in Israel. There was jealousy, apparently, in his heart. And now, this day comes where he's the oldest. He's on the battlefield. He's thinking about it for 40 days. He's hearing the voice of Goliath. And here comes his younger brother asking around, like, hey... What what's the king gonna do for the guy that defeats Goliath? What's gonna happen? And he's seeing this young brother of his and he lashes out against him. He says, I know why you're here. With who did you leave? The few sheep out in the wilderness. Like, man, you, you've already got a job. All you're allowed to do is take care of a few sheep in the wilderness. I know the evil and the presumption that is in your heart. But now let me ask you here this morning: did he know? The evil and the presumption in David's heart? No, not at all. He had judged David, but he had judged David incorrectly. He had not seen things as God had seen them because David was a man after God's own heart. This is exactly what Jesus went through. When he came to his own, John tells us, his own did not receive him. And even his own brothers did not believe him and taunted him. There were days where they said he's out of his mind and tried to pull him away from the multitudes as he taught them and as he ministered to them. Now the beautiful thing is that just like it happened for Jesus, it also happened for David there came a time in both of their lives where their brothers did follow them and where their brothers did believe in them. In fact, a couple of Jesus's brothers, Jude and James, after Christ rose from the dead, became converts and then significant leaders in the early church, even writing small books in the New Testament. And so they became used by God. But what you're seeing here are doubts rising up from those who were close to David, just as doubts rose up from those who were close to Jesus. what I wanted to show you here is that if you want to experience and borrow the victory of Jesus, then you have to, like David, push past the doubters. You have to push past the doubters. What's that saying they say? Haters, go and Hate. And naysayers go naysay. <laughs> you know, and I mean, the, the reality is there will be those who doubt the work of God in your life. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter ten, verse thirty-six. He said, "A person's enemies will be those of his own household." Now, I want to be very clear. Sometimes those doubts from your own household are the beautiful messenger of Jesus to make sure that the. The genuineness of your faith is tested by the fires of their doubt coming towards you. I listened to Pastor Mike share his testimony a little bit at our most recent intro to Calvary this last Tuesday night. And he had for a long time struggled with substance abuse and addiction. And at that time in his life, when he finally came to Christ, his life was riddled with heroin abuse. And his wife, Michelle, his young wife, Michelle, she just couldn't take it anymore. And she'd been coming to church, and she'd been walking with the Lord, but this guy was ruining her whole life, ruining their family, and she just couldn't handle it anymore. And finally, this moment came in his life where he had a seizure, he's in bed, and he's recovering, and his body got clean because of 30 days of being in a coma. And finally, when he came to, through a course of certain events, he gave his life to Christ, and he began to announce to his family, including Michelle, I'm a Christian now. I'm going to walk with the Lord now. I'm not going to turn to that old life. And as he shared this story on Tuesday night, he said that she said to me, we'll see. (laughs) You see, sometimes that word, sometimes even that doubt, It's there because you cannot stand on the confidence of others. You cannot stand on the calling of others. You have to stand on what the Lord Himself is working in your heart and in your mind. I can remember it like it was yesterday, sitting in my father's dining room when I was 19 years old, and looking at him, he's a pastor, was a pastor at that time, and said to him, Dad, I think that the Lord is calling me into the pastorate. I thought he'd be excited. I thought he'd rejoice. I thought he'd be like, oh man, really? Here's a bunch of books you should read. Here's half my library. You know, something like that. But instead he looked at me and he said, oh, I don't know. And he began to challenge me. He began to offer different careers and opportunities to me. And that was one of the best things that he could have done for my heart because I could not stand on the calling of someone else. I could not stand on the belief of someone else. I had to stand on the conviction in my own heart. David could not stand on Eliab's support or lack thereof. He had to say, God is with me. God is for me. God will strengthen me. And if you are going to do anything for the Lord and experience the power of God working in your life, you've got to come to a place where you're able to push past the doubt. You're able to push past the fears. And so often those doubts will come from right inside your own heart. Remember Moses, when God called Moses out there in the wilderness, the burning bush I mean, if there was ever a thing that would like confirm your call, you'd be able to tell that story forever. Like, I was just taking care of some sheep out in the wilderness and I saw this bush. It was burning, but not burning. And then God started talking to me, audibly speaking to me. And he told me to come and do this. I know that I'm called. But after God told him that he'd called him to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, Moses said, but, but, but who am I? Who am I that you would do this work through me? I cannot do this work. There was doubt immediately within the heart of a man like Moses. You see, we've got to obtain, borrow, the belief of Jesus, the, 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 the resolve and the Spirit of Christ to push past those doubts. Now in verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. You know, finally, he's heard word that there's a soldier or someone who's willing to fight Goliath. It's been 40 days. No one stepped forward. And David said to Saul, verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. You know, Saul's just looking at this teenager probably by this time a late teen and he's looking at David and he's like man this guy has he's going to eat you for breakfast he's been fighting wars and battling since you were born but David said to Saul verse 34 your servant used to keep sheep for his father remember I pointed this out to you last week David at this point has retired from sheep keeping he says your servant used to keep sheep and when, the lion, or, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And now what I want you to see here is that David is drawing now upon a previous victory. And the previous victories came against a lion and against a bear. Or he says it in the plural, lions and bears. Now, there have been a couple times in my life, just around the Monterey Peninsula, where I've been out in the wilderness, and I've come very close to a mountain lion. Plenty of times I've been out there and I've come near a a bobcat, but bobcats are, you know, pretty small and they're usually pretty scared of you and so it's no big deal. But mountain lions are a different thing altogether because they just move in a way that communicates, I'm not intimidated of anybody, including you. And I tell you what, there was no heart within me, no spirit within me. Both times I came close to these guys, where I thought to myself, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna run towards it. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight against it. I'm going to defeat it. There was nothing within me that wanted to have anything to do with these things. In fact, I got quiet both times. I hid behind a tree. I just kind of waited for it to do its thing and just get out of my zone so that I could get out of its zone. But what I want you to see here is that David had not been stimulated to fight against a lion or against a bear for no reason. The reason that he had been urged by the Spirit to fight against these beasts is because they had attacked his father's sheep. And in those moments, when the sheep were susceptible, David was stirred. And he wanted to protect those sheep, so he went and did what he had to do to defeat them. And the Spirit of God, of course, helped him in that endeavor. This is beautiful because it so wonderfully reminds us of Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, Jesus saw his people. He saw his flock. He saw his sheep, you and me. And he's like, man, I'm going to go and I'm going to do what I have to do to pull them out of the mouth of the beast in order to save their lives. Here's what I wanted to say about this particular thing. What you see here is that both David and Jesus ran forward in order to save the flock. And if you want to borrow the victory of Jesus, you've got to come to a place in your life where you are able to think about the flock of God and begin working towards helping the flock of God. And the flock of God is obviously God's people here on earth but you know, it could be beyond that, I think, as well. It could be that you become a parent. And as you become a parent, you start looking at these children that God has given to you, and you begin to realize, the Lord is asking me now to grow up. He's asking me to mature. He's asking me to take my faith seriously and to pour into these children and to protect them and to watch over them. We might think to ourselves that that kind of spirit comes naturally. Naturally. But then we look around the world and we can see plenty of parents who have ignored the natural tendency to take care of the flock of their own children. It might be in a pocket of pain here in this community, people that the Lord is calling you to reach out and to minister to. I think of our Compassion Pregnancy Center, for example, and thinking about an area or a pocket of our community and saying, these are God's people, this is His flock, and we're going to lay down our lives working towards helping other human beings. But there are thousands of ways in which the Lord might be looking into your life and saying, I want to ask you, I want to help help you run in victory, but you've got to get a flock orientation. You've got to see others beyond yourself. John said in 1 John 3 verse 16, he said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. One of the most miserable lives of all is the life that is completely self- focused but when you get a mission for and towards other people whether it's a large group or a small group it begins to electrify your life you begin to have a reason for fighting a reason for battling and God begins to have a reason to impart his spirit upon you to strengthen you for that life and for that work all right now let's look at the end of the story in verse 38 and following as we close it out together then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. I love that. There's a good word in there about not being, your, not being someone else, not wearing Saul's armor, but being who God has made you to be. Then, verse 40, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance so apparently goliath as he's going through this he's like man he is young but he's a handsome little fella too bad i'm gonna have to kill him and the philistine verse 43 said to david am i a dog that you come to me with sticks and the philistine cursed david by his gods the philistine said to david come to me and i will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field Then David said to the Philistine, and as we read this, you're going to be struck by how brave this is, but also how poetic it is. Remember, this guy is a psalmist. He knows how to speak. He said, You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David, verse 50, prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David." Then David, verse 51, ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. All right, so the whole battle unfolds. You know, finally they get there. You notice the bravery of David. He doesn't run away from Goliath. He runs towards Goliath. He had honed his skills with his sling and with rocks. Those years serving as a shepherd he knew how to aim that thing and he fired it towards Goliath and it sank into Goliath's forehead and he fell down flat he was more than likely not dead but concussed and so David lies comes over his body lying there and he realizes man I got no sword with which to end this whole thing So he pulls Goliath's own sword out of its sheath. Just like Jesus, who crushed Satan with the very cross that Satan tried to design for Jesus, David pulls out Goliath's own sword. The very thing that Goliath thought he'd killed David with, David then pulls out and chops off Goliath's head with, and the victory is won. And the final thing that I wanted to show you today about the victory of David and Jesus are simply the humble instruments that David used, the sling and the rock, and the humble instruments that Jesus used, the beautiful, humble cross of Christ. And so what I wanted to propose to you is that if we want to run in the borrowed victory of Jesus, we have to continue to cling to the humble weapons that are at our disposal in God, in Christ. You see, your victory is not going to come from your strength. Your victory is not going to come from your intellect. we got a lot of smart people in this church. You know, blows me away a lot of times. You know, I'll meet people here in this church. It's been happening to me for years now at this point, where I'll meet people in this church. I ask them like, what do you do? And I hear about what they do, and I just think to myself, like, what in the world? I can't believe an uneducated guy like me is teaching a person like you the Bible. But the reality is we will not win based on our intellect. We will not win based on our own strength or our own strategies or our own schemes. But God has given to us these very humble vessels, these very humble instruments for victory. First of all, He's given us a humble gospel. That is a stumbling block to the Jew and is foolishness to the Gentile, but for us is the power of God. We continually go back to that great and glorious gospel message, the cross of Christ. But He's also given to us the humble instruments of the Word, the Bible, Scripture, the Word of God, being in the Word, reading the Word, letting God speak and teach our hearts. He's given us prayer. He's given us fellowship. He's given us Christian community. These are humble instruments, but we should not neglect them if we want to experience the victory and the power of Christ. All right, so let's see the way that it all ended It says, verse 51, When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arayim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but put his armor in his tent. So this interesting thing, David now carrying the head of Goliath around for a little bit, probably threw it over the wall or posted it on the door of Jerusalem, which was not yet uh, an Israelite stronghold. I think David was announcing, I'm coming for you, because when he was king, that was one of the first things he did. He went after Jerusalem. As soon as Saul, verse 55, saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, bethlehemite saul obviously already knew of david because he played the harp for him but he couldn't remember whose father he was what household did he belong to what household was going to be free of taxes if david actually won and so that's what he's inquiring about at this moment with the head of goliath in his hand all right let's stand up together the way i want to end this service is i want us to stand and i want to lead you in a prayer And the reason I want to do this is because the armies of Israel, you might have noticed in that last text, they ran in the victory that David won for them. And my prayer is that we would more and more stand, run in the victory that Christ has already won for us, and that we would partake of that for the rest of our lives. Really, in a sense, what I've just shared with you, kind of is the story of the Bible. It's what the Bible is all about, that There was someone else who won the victory for us, and we are now called to run in his great victory for our lives. So Father, I come before you, and I just want to pray, Lord, for your people. We're standing here physically, but Lord, what we're praying for is that in the spiritual dimension, we would be able to stand. Lord, that we would not fall prey to the sins and temptations that are so easily there, but Lord, that also we'd be able to be victorious in the midst of trials and difficulties and pains. Lord, that as we go through those things, you would manifest your power toward us. And so Lord, we give ourselves to you. We thank you for the great victory that you won for us. And we pray that you'd help us to walk in it this week and with this life. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.